how do you mitigate your risk? Montel's forecasting services cover risks from hours ahead to years ahead. We welcome you to hedge your market exposure with our diverse forecasting portfolio. Contact us at salesatmontelnews.com for more info and a free trial. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast. Bring energy matters in an informal setting. This week we turn our attention to Brussels and in particular to the EU executive's vision for a decarbonised continent. This means we look at the ways in which the European Commission will set in place the framework and the tools to help industry become net zero by 2050. In addition to a jungle of acronyms, we will also talk about the ideological rift in the Commission between countries that favour a more liberal approach and those that are more dirigiste, preferring to pick winners perhaps. So to talk us through these issues is Giorgio Corbetta of Global Council, a consultancy. A warm welcome to you, Giorgio. Many thanks, Richard, and thank you for having me. How's life in Brussels at the moment? It's very well. I guess that the situation for most of the people is better, as the terrace have opened as of last week. So I guess that's also very good for basically business. But, you know, for me, we have young kids. So the most important thing is that the schools remain open for the kids and for the parents as well. But, you know, that's has actually been the case since the beginning of the year. So we're very, very, very grateful <laughs> for that. Absolutely. But maybe it's still some way off having the, the meetings, uh, face-to-face meetings in the sort of nub of where it happens in the EU parts of uh, Brussels. Yeah, I think that's going to depend mostly on the vaccination rate, which is not going that fast compared to other countries. But I guess it's in the average of many other European countries. Last time I checked, I think my age range is supposed to be vaccinated by July, I think. So that's not that very far away. Okay, no, exactly. Fingers crossed we can all get back to so-called normal fairly soon. We're here to talk about the EU industrial strategy, Giorgio. Could you tell us a little bit about this? What is it exactly and why is it important? So the EU industrial strategy is a communication by the European Commission articulating how the EU can boost the competitiveness of its industry whilst also achieving the carbon neutrality target by 2050. So the strategy we are discussing about was published on the 5th of May, and it is actually a review of a previous version of the strategy that was published in March last year. And actually, the day before the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. So it had to be updated as COVID dramatically changed many of the assumptions the commission was working with. So the communication also came with a thick pack of documents. So we're definitely going to break those down for your listeners in a moment. But what's important to note now is that they include also an analysis of Europe's strategic dependencies in a number of industries, including hydrogen, batteries, renewable energies, as well as a proposal to manage and to basically control foreign 
subsidies to companies from basically third countries who operate in the European Union. And I think that the last interesting bit to mention is that there's also a, an outline of what are the pathways for, in particular, the steelmaking sector to reduce emissions, which we will get to a bit later. As to your question why it's important, I have to say that the release of the strategy itself has been actually delayed twice. So many of us were waiting for it with much anticipation. However, the strategy itself came without a clear timeline of actions and performance indicators to actually measure the success of the strategy. But I will perhaps say maybe something different to many commentators. And I'll say that although it's true, there are not many political announcements in the strategy, the strategy itself and the documents it came out with do give a very important indications as to where the commission is going with a number of its proposals. And uh, in particular, the fit for 55, which I'm sure your listeners know about, but you know, it's basically is a major realignment of EU legislation towards achieving the 2030 and 2050 emission reduction targets. So I do believe that the strategy as it is now is important specifically for the energy sector. Excellent. But so it's, you know, it's a communication. So it's not a directive or a regulation. It's just basically giving the backdrop, the the context of what's happening now or going to happen now in June and over the summer with the Fit for 55 package, you know, the climate law, the new renewables directive. Would that be a fair assessment there, Giorgio? Yeah, I, th- I think that the main difference between the current version of the strategy and the one that was released in March is that there is an incorporation of a few lessons learned from the pandemic. So how Europe actually performed during the pandemic. So there is a sense of urgency throughout the document and a greater emphasis around the need to accelerate the transitions and to recover in a sustainable way from the pandemic. So in terms of what the consequences will be, I think many of the proposals that the previous version of the strategy included have actually been released by the European Commission. If you think of the hydrogen strategy, the sector integration strategy. So those are things of the past in a way now. But it's true what you say. What you see in the strategy now is a clearer indication of what the Commission wants to do going forward, and in particular for energy, that has to do with the 50 or 55 package. Does it mention funds or the cash? Where Who's going to pay for all this, uh, the rapid acceleration to a green transition, Giorgio? Well, not really, in the sense that there is mentioning of where the funds are coming from, but those are basically going to be the recovery plans of each of the member states. So I think there is also throughout the document a call for member states to use wisely this money also because, you know, there is the understanding of this is basically a once-in-a-lifetime opportunities for national economies to recover in the right way. We've already seen some of these, the submissions from several member states, haven't we already? Yes. Yeah. 
I touched upon it in the intro there, Giorgio, about, you know, the two strands of thought within the commission here. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about this. I mean, I think maybe it would it be fair to say that it's been exacerbated with the with Brexit. So you had a kind of um, a liberal, basically a market based economy or very or a country that was very pro market now out of the EU. Where does that leave the discussion at the moment? And is there a kind of little bit of a divide there? If you could talk us through that, that would be very, very interesting, Giorgio. Sure, sure. So I don't think I'm going to break any news on this, as you know, this has been discussed since the 5th of May. But what you're alluding to is very interesting because the strategy seems, in fact, to be the output of a conflict between two competing visions of industrial policy. So, in fact, on the one side, there is the more liberal camp, where member states like the Nordics and the Netherlands basically locate themselves, which supports the current competition rules architecture. Whilst on the other side, there is a more proactive faction that would like to see competition rules bent to boost the competitiveness of the EU industrial base. And, you know, this is France as its champion. So I think this conflict is apparently also reflected within the European Commission itself with Vice President Versteyer in the first camp. So those who support the current competition framework in the European Union and the Commissioner for Internal Market Breton in the second one. And so I think what you mentioned is true because this is in fact a battle that will be fought mostly in the revision of the state aid guidelines, which is coming up by the end of the year. And I think that the proactive camp is looking at merger control and the subsidies as a way to modify competition policy. So whilst it is, of course, very hard to tell what exactly is going to happen, I think we can say two things uh, with relative confidence. One is that it is going to be very difficult to change the state aid guidelines. And this is because of a number of reasons, but the most relevant one is the long European tradition of strong competition policy. But on the other side, it is also true that the revision of the rules will have to anticipate the consequences of the new EU climate targets and also minimize the possibilities for the creative justice of the European Union to actually reverse some of the European Commission's approval decisions. And that has been the case in the past, I think one of the most relevant example is the Tempest judgment, which uh, annulled the Commission's approval decision of the EU capacity market, which of course has huge implication on markets and investors' confidence as well. What are your expectations that the rules, the state aid guidelines, will be bent a bit? Because I mean, we got you know we got the decarbonisation target. We've got the energy transition, we've got the post-COVID recovery. Maybe, you know, there's a feeling that it now is not the time to really strictly adhere to rules that were set before this new set of guidelines will come into effect. Yeah, I think that there is agreement amongst 
many policymakers and stakeholders that the current framework of competition policy in the European Union needs to be updated to today's world. And this is also clearly something the strategy itself is calling for. However, I think I'm skeptical, and that's my view, on the possibility for, you know, the spirit of the rules to be changed because of the reasons I mentioned and because in actuality there's not much consensus, in particular across the different member states. What I believe is possibly going to happen is, you know, tweaking here and there, in particular when it comes to the creation of industrial alliances and the private-public partnerships, which are needed to boost the EU industrial base, in particular on clean technologies, which is definitely an enabler for the European Union to reach its 2030 and 2050 targets. Absolutely, Giorgio. So you were saying, you mentioned earlier, and before we go on to the sort of nitty gritty, the actual details of what's being you know, communicated, you said something about interesting about using the state aid guidelines for third countries, you know, or, or for firms within third. Is this, you know, for example, do you mean, you know, companies like Gazprom here or US companies, Chinese, you know, the three gorges that bought a, a stake in EDP, for example. Is this what's being mentioned here? Or? Yeah, so I think this is the only legislative proposal that has come out with the strategy. And this is basically to control subsidies to companies who operate in the European Union but do not really belong to the European Union. So I think this is true as an example for the companies that you just mentioned. But I think that here... The purpose is really to position the European Union as a more authoritative diplomatic actor in the world. And this is also true when it comes to energy. I think that the European energy industry has been very good at also exporting its goods. If you think of wind turbines in particular, we have a huge manufacturing capacity here which is able to export across the whole world. So I think that the worry now, as we live in a more globalized way and actually competition for European companies is coming from many different countries and regions of the world, the concern is that the EU industrial basis could lose its competitiveness globally but I think that's also a worry when it comes to internal competition within the European Union. So we see that it's very, very difficult for European companies to compete with, in particular, Chinese companies who are effectively funded by the state. So I think that the importance of the only legislative commitment that's come out with this strategy is to be looked at under this light. Excellent. So I think, you know, obviously the border tax is also, the carbon border tax is obviously a, a, a part of this. Yes. But let, let's go into the, the details here of the industrial strategy communication. And let's talk about the impact on the energy sector. So there's an aspect here where it sort of tries to, to boost the use of renewable PPAs, especially for, for industry. How does this work? Could you talk us through this, uh, Georgia? 
You know, what's the vision here? So the strategy does say that the commission will look into further promoting renewable power purchase agreements or basically PPAs. So they will do so through addressing in particular barriers to the further development of PPAs in the proposal for a revised renewable energy directive, which was supposed to come within the framework of the Fit for 55 package, but we're not any longer sure. So this is really something the renewable energy industry has been calling for for a long time. And the commission is finally looking into PPA regimes across different jurisdictions in the European Union and assessing how to boost them. And the importance of PPAs is, you know, is crucial for both energy generators as well as companies who want to decarbonize their electricity consumption in particular. So I think the relevance of PPAs is that it offers a clear stream of cash flow for renewable energy operators. But on the other side, it does help companies, and in particular, if you think of manufacturing companies, who want to really abate their emissions. So PPAs as a tool are not really something new in the European Union. I, I think they've been there for a very, very long time, but they are much more important now in the context of, once again, decarbonizing basically the European economy through 2050. But what, what are the details here, Giorgio? I understand that the role of P, that PPAs will play is, is very important, but is there talk of the Commission or Member State underwriting PPAs? What are the details? How can they boost this? You know, because I think we can see the need for it, but, you know, obviously there's, yeah, right. you know, financing and the way, you know, providing support or, as I mentioned, underwriting. Is that, is that something that's looked at? Is that these options on the table? This is one of the issues because the strategy doesn't go as far as saying anything on the details. So I think it's difficult to say what the commission could actually do. I think what they could do is to look into, one example would be the interplay between making a PPA deal and being able to trade in the market. So I think in a number of countries, and I think in, in Spain, the regulation actually forbids doing both. So this could be hmm. seen as an issue very, very clearly. So it's not a financing issue. I don't think that the problem here is where the money is coming from, but it's really how to really include PPAs in the regulatory framework. So mm. I'm not sure if this is answering your question, but you know, unfortunately, this is really this period of the communication. So they don't really give away many details. Okay, but I understand. I think, yeah, so reducing some of the barriers and maybe and some of the obstacles to the, the signing of these deals that yes. will prevent them from being, yeah. So that, that makes sense. Absolutely, Giorgio. But so there's another aspect here, and there's what I mentioned, the acronyms, um, CFDs for the ETS, which is, as you know, contracts for difference for the, you know, um, emissions trading scheme, specifically geared towards industry. Could you, could you talk us through that? What, do, what are these contracts for difference and how would they work in the context of being applied to the ETS? Sure. So now we're talking about 
carbon contracts for difference, which are basically mechanisms to reimburse asset owners of part of the capex invested in basically decarbonizing their processes. So mm. to make it clear, we can say that a cement manufacturer can install a carbon capture storage facility at one of its plants. And if it says, let's say it costs 80 euros per ton of CO2, which is a, which is a capturing, then the owner can strike a deal with the state essentially, according to which they get back the difference between the carbon price and the 80 euros. Mm. So for instance, now that would mean as the carbon price in the European Union, in the EUTS is basically 50 euros, then the owner would get 80 minus 50, so 30 back. And this is important because it's essentially a support mechanism aimed at compensating asset owners who are believed to be over-investing in the energy transition. So with the carbon price as a benchmark. So what the commission wants to do, and I mean, once again, we unfortunately don't have many details as to how they plan on doing it. What it wants to really do is to look into this approach and try and adapt how the ETS works. So this is coming, in fact, as part of the revised ETS directive, which is supposed to also come out in July this year. And this will be clearly an opportunity for clean tech manufacturers to see their products promoted in a way. Once again, there's no detail as to how this is going to be done, but the fact that it's clearly mentioned as one of the priorities of the European Commission is very much important for the manufacturing industry in the European Union, if you think of steel and uh, manufacturing sectors. It's very interesting how it ties this to the carbon price to then the whole process of decarbonization to get the whole ball rolling. I think that on the industry side, because the power sector, by hopefully by, you know, in the next five or 10 years, will have largely moved to, to decarbonize in certain sectors and in certain areas anyway. So it's, that's quite important for industry. But you mentioned steel as well, Giorgio. Can you just talk us through a little bit about steel? What's happening here and what the, what the vision is for the steel industry? So as, as we mentioned in the beginning, the commission also released a detailed analysis of how the steel industry can contribute to the net zero goal in a staff working document. It outlines, in essence, the policy toolbox for the industry to decarbonize. And that's, you know, important because steel is seen as both one of the critical sectors for the EU economy, as well as amongst the ones which are most difficult to actually decarbonize. So the document lists the funding programs the sector has at its disposal to invest in research and development, as well as the regulatory environment it has to basically operate in. And this, in fact, includes the EUETS and the carbon border adjustment mechanism. So the document does acknowledge the existence of a global supply chain for the EU steel sector. And I think that 
once again, the relevance of the document does not necessarily lie in its content, but rather in the fact that it indicates to industry that decarbonizing manufacturing is a clear concern for the commission. So I think that this has to be seen in particular by the energy sector as a clear investment opportunities for hydrogen as a fuel, CCS. And so those technologies, which could basically profit from an increased focus on how to decarbonize steel. I'm not entirely sure why the European Commission has chosen steel in particular. I think steel as such was also mentioned in the March 2020 strategy. So it's possibly a follow-up to the previous version of the strategy. But this is clearly a testament to the good advocacy work of the industry in influencing the thinking of the European Commission. So the steel lobby has come out strong here. Yeah, it's a thumbs up for them. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Perfect, Giorgio. Um, I would love to return to this topic once we have more detail and to go through it and what the implications are for for the energy industry and and the listeners out there who will be affected by it. But uh, thank you very much for joining the Montel Weekly Podcast this week, Giorgio. Well, thank you very much. It's been awesome to be able to talk to you. Thank you, Richard. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or, you know, let us know if you you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.